This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 4th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The American people are free not because of the Constitution, but in spite of it. That is the broad claim of F.H. Buckley in his new book, The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America. We spoke prior to a forum for the book held last week. Your argument is such a stridently different one from popular perception about the Constitution of the United States, how we got it, uh, what was, uh, what went into it, uh, what the uh, sort of energy was that animated the document that we ended up with. And uh, so I think that begs that, that you sort of unpack a lot of this. Let's start with uh, your assessment of the Federalist Papers, the, ratific- uh, this, the sort of debate over the structure of the Constitution. Uh, at the time, back in the in this late 1700s, I'm not making a brief for originalism here. I don't want to say to interpret the Constitution, you have to go back to what the framers thought. But come to think of it, that's not a bad way of doing it. Now, if you were to do that, what you'd do is you'd read the notes of the convention, principally Madison's notes, but other people's notes, and there you'd find that the theme of the convention in Philadelphia in 1787 was somewhat different from what appears in the Federalist Papers. Recall that the Federalist Papers were written by two people um, who emerged quite dissatisfied with the result. Madison thought he had lost, essentially. Hamilton was so much at the extreme that he departed halfway through. He knew he had no influence with the delegates. And yet, we look to these people and to Hamilton for advice on what it's all about. Hamilton's energy in the executive in Federalist 70 is said to be an important uh, manner of interpreting presidential power. I want to say fiddlesticks. I want to say, no, what the framers worried about was George III. And what they didn't want was an all-powerful executive. And what they gave us, which is almost never recognized, was a constitution where they thought Congress would appoint, in nearly all cases, the president rather like a parliamentary system. So what they wanted, in short, was something much closer to congressional government than than we've ever had, ever since 1824. So as we understand it today, the selection of a president by electors chosen in, manner that, in a manner that state legislatures shall choose, mm-hmm. uh, why is it not? Why did we not get the system that the framers thought they were getting? Well, something happened which the framers didn't anticipate and which they would have thought tragic, namely democracy. They didn't like it. They didn't like the idea of the populace making a choice. They despised mobs they saw all around them. And they thought, firstly, the electors would really have a choice. They'd really be filtering popular beliefs. And of course, now there's electors are mere ciphers. But most importantly, they thought there would not be national candidates who would command a majority of the votes in the Electoral College. And when that happens, the Constitution provides a decision is kicked over to the House voting by state. That's what happened in 1800. It's what happened in 1824. It's what's never happened since. And what's happened since is because of modern communications, even 19th century uh, communications, there were national candidates. And with national candidates and the rise of democracy, the people began to rule, not 
with their voices not filtered by intermediate people. So this was, was this the critical moment in your view of the push toward what you describe as uh, crown government in America, that is this aggrandized executive? Two things had to happen. One was the rise of democracy, but the other thing was the rise in the 20th century of the regulatory state and the modern media. And that's been accelerated in recent years, particularly under President Obama. So what that gives us is a president who seemingly makes all the decisions. And what I want to say is that if you want to understand the Constitution, so far as it concerns the structure of the federal government, you have an easy ride of it now because it comes down to a mere dozen words of the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, the president must stand for election every four years. That's all it's about. Even the 22nd Amendment term limits doesn't really constrain much an ambitious president. We're now looking at the Argentinian solution of a spouse succeeding a spouse. That's a good run, 16 years. So uh, as, I, as I said at the outset, your argument is stridently different. And libertarians point to, and I think conservatives and I think many liberals as well, point to deviations from the Constitution as the source of this aggrandizement. There's libertarianism small and large. Libertarianism small concerns itself with things like important things like mandatory seatbelt laws and so on. But then there's libertarian large, which is what the framers were interested in, which is a structure of government which prevents rule by one person only, which is increasingly where we're getting to. If you say that my views are stridently different from other people, I think here's a simple way of expressing this. I think most Americans think that they live in a free country because of their constitution, whereas I want to say Americans live in a free country in spite of their constitution. Why does the United States, why do people in the United States live in a free country? Well, if you want to look at what's empirically, what's different between presidential governments here and in other countries, then a big difference would be the British inheritance. Another difference would be the relative wealth of the United States. These are things which tend towards moderation. And up to now, that's been important in preserving liberty. But as to the future, only a fool would make a guess. Do you suspect that norms that were established at, at the early, the founding era of the United States play a role in maintaining the, the freedom that we have today? That's too big a question, and it's really unanswerable, and it's a question about social norms. My problem with social norms is that they seem, they're, they're tautological. You want to say that social norms are different because social norms are different. However, in my book, empirically, I contrasted presidential countries, America versus other countries, and what stood out was um, a British heritage, like Canada or Australia New Zealand, uh, wealth, like those countries, and the fact that it's been free for a long time. You point to the rise of the regulatory state that uh, accelerated under FDR. Was it the death of this non-delegation doctrine, or was it something else that drove the rise of uh, these executive agencies? I think the non-delegation issue is a false issue. Like other legal attempts to rein in the president with the assistance of the courts, I don't think it's going to happen, in short. Moreover, all of that happened. I mean, the rise of the regulatory state and other things like the rise of a modern media that makes celebrities of presidents, 
uh, or executives, all of that happened in parliamentary regimes. But as institutions, parliamentary regimes have a way of limiting executives that presidential regimes don't have. Here you see the separation of powers, which was meant to constrain an executive, serves to immunize him. But what do you mean by that? What I mean is the president gets a free ride because of the separation of powers. And attempts by Congress to rein in the president seem manifestly ineffective when contrasted with what happens in, say, a House of Commons in Canada or Australia. The popular conception that we have in the United States of Madison's vision of the Constitution was power checking power. And uh, you talk about the Madisonian idea that uh, Congress would uh, assert itself in order to, I think, clip the wings of the president at key moments. Yeah, and, the, and we don't we, we don't have that today in in a variety of very substantial areas. But do you do you think that he was just simply wrong about that? Well, first of all, the person who was the real origin of the idea of separation of powers was not so much Madison as Governor Morris, historically, um, which is something I write about in the book. Um, but if separation, as I say, was meant to constrain the president, it's failed as contrasted with governments that don't have a separation of powers, namely parliamentary governments. There a prime minister can be brought down simply by a vote in the House of Commons or perhaps more likely by the party structure, the party elders. But here you have a presidential party and you have a congressional party and they're two separate things. I suppose the good news is the congressional parties are going to wither. We have congressional elections coming up in November. The question is who cares if Congress is as impuissant as I say and if all the power are really importantly vests in the president, then what does it matter? Congress will pass a bill and send it up to the president for signing, and he'll ignore it, and that'll be the end of it. It sounds as if you prefer parliamentary systems. Well, I think uh, it's not a question of my preference. I think it's a question of what the evidence is, and the evidence is clearly they're freer. But rather than make this a question of America versus other countries, I want to say Adherence to what the framers wanted would have given us something closer to congressional government, if not parliamentary government. And that that which they most feared and that the most absent from Hamilton is executive power is dangerous. But let me mention one thing okay. that Americans don't get, which is striking to any visitor from, say, a Commonwealth country, and that is what I call Jack Spratt's law, the need to separate head of state and head of government. Here the president is the head of state. That's extremely dangerous. It means that people will revere him. It means that when there's a tragic event, he'll be asked to give a healing speech and Peggy Noonan will daub her eyes as she writes about it. It means that opposition to the president has a tinge of disloyalty about it. In other countries, in parliamentary countries, politicians are figures of fun, they're buffoons. It's much safer to laugh at them to, than to take them as so important as one would as a head of state. All right. So uh, I think some comedian a long time ago said one of the biggest problems in the United States is that we can't just grab our politicians by the head and then give them a noogie right on top of the skull. And that would be actually a, a broadly preferable system. Absolutely right. I might also mention that I wrote the book as a Canadian, but that I became last month an American, 
but the date is important. I became an American on April 15. It was as if to say, welcome to America, here's the bill. To the extent that uh, what we have in the United States is salvageable in terms of preventing or uh, mitigating this rule by one person in the office of the president, what changes would you make to the Constitution? I don't think there are changes that can be made to the Constitution. I don't think Article 5, talk about Article 5, would get one anywhere. I think that if there are changes, they have to come through the regular political system, and that is essentially through the voters themselves. I think that a first start might be made if Congress cleaned up its act. The closest thing we had to congressional government was the... um, the administration, the government of Newt Gingrich, may I call it that, in 1994, the contract with America. The problem with Congress, you see, is that it behaves as if the only thing that matters often is its own congressional riding seat, whereas Newt's point was to say, no, 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 let's build up a national party answerable to the whole country with one set of policies. The, the Tea Party's voice is somewhat incoherent, but I'd see it as trying to mimic that. That would be a start. F.H. Buckley is author of the new book, The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America. He's also a foundation professor at the George Mason University School of Law. You can watch the full forum at our website, cato.org.